In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Sick homes don't have friends, they have secrets. And that's the kind of home that I grew up in. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is for you to become your best by calling you into the arena of manhood, calling you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and calling you up to your absolute best version of you. Because when you get it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we we salute salute you. you. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and you can hear with my, I'm here with my synced up partner in crime, co-host and good friend Dale Culver. How you doing, man? Doing amazing. Are you doing amazing? I am doing amazing. Really good. Wow, life is that's, good. That's man. pretty. Usually, I'm only doing amazing after two cups of caffeinated coffee. Mm. Well, I had so, those this morning at right. six a.m. Oh, okay, good. Well, hey, I'm excited about today. Uh, we've got a, a guest on today who actually he doesn't know this, but he was highly impact impactful in my theology of God in my early formative days as a follower of Jesus. Uh, He rose the top of his ministry success. I mean, he rode as high as you could rise, only to experience great loss and tragedy. And man, he wrote a book that just rocked my world. So uh, if you're a guy who has experienced darkness in life and you're going through it right now, man, hang on, because this is going to be the podcast for you. But before we get into that, do you have a man word for me today? I do. And knowing you, Mm -hmm. you stole it off the book. Somewhere. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with brokenness. My word is brokenness. Is that the man word brokenness? Well, I my criteria would normally wouldn't be like uh, that sort of a thing on the negative aspect. What's the word? It's hope. Oh, dang! I thought I thought I had you, but I don't. I, we need to go to marriage counseling, I think, yes. because I thought I had you figured we'll, out. We'll need but to do that right away. Apparently, I'm wrong. So, hope. Talk to me about hope, hope. man. Men, you want hope? You, there's one really great place to go and get that, and that is Jesus and the Bible, and uh, you need to be the one that's helping in your family to bring hope to your family by getting your stuff together. Yeah, I think that, so, I, I think a hope is seeing seeing something that's not seen, right? Yeah. And your so kids I think, should find hope in their dad. Yeah, their, yeah. Your wife should look at you and go, hey, we're going to be good. Even in the midst when things don't look yep. well. Yep, because you're so connected you to the source yeah. that you can help disseminate that oh, out. That's really good, man. So, hey, do you have any reviews for us today? Yeah, I do, man. Uh, Harvey sent us this. Uh, his other little name there says H. Luzier, but, uh, but he just said this is the best inspirational podcast out there for men. Cool, and that's so cool, that, man. Hey, man, we appreciate you guys writing these things, and uh, they just encourage us to keep doing what we do. So thank you. Yep, guys, and, and keep send them us coming. Your, send us your information, Jack. Uh, not Jack. Uh, Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> I no, got Jack's information already. Yeah, I but hear Harvey, you. send me your information. I'd love to send you some swag. Hey, guys, that encourages us. We like to take your quotes and celebrate them, post them out there, and put them out there. And uh, and uh, keep them coming, guys. Really appreciate that. So, hey, I'm excited about our guest today. This guy's been a guy uh, impacted me as a 23-year-old guy. So we're talking 20 years, 30 years ago. So my friend wow. Jack Deer. Jack is 70 years old, lives in St. Louis, Missouri, with his bride of 45 years, Lisa. He's a, He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for 12 years, pastor and church planter, author and conference speaker. And what Jack doesn't know, and I'm going to surprise him, is his book, uh, Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit. I have been looking for that book in my library, Jack. It must be at home, or I, or I gave it to somebody. But that book really was formative 
in my theology as a young guy, I was involved in the Vineyard Christian Fellowship as well, and I just wanted to know about the theology behind the Holy Spirit, and uh, your book really helped form and shape that, and so uh, it's really, I feel like I'm sitting in the presence of kind of a, a hero in a way, so thank you for being on our show, man. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I just finished rewriting Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Really? It's a 70, yeah, it's a 70% new book. It's got uh, a bunch of stuff the first uh, volume didn't have, and Zondervan is going to relaunch it in uh, September. Nice. Man, you want to come back on the show and talk about it? Sure, yeah, well, absolutely. Let's, I'll make sure you get a copy. Yeah, that'd be great. And you may hate the podcast. You may not want to come back on our show, but <laughs> but we're just going to hope for the best because our word for the day is hope. So, man, I really appreciate that. You know, and it's interesting, your latest book, which I want to focus on today, even in our darkness, it's a memoir telling the story of becoming a friend of God. And you wrote, it's an unsanitized version of the Christian life. And I would just say that's an understatement, man. Your your story, I'm like, it can't get worse. It can't get worse. Well, it just got worse. It can't get worse. And then just talking to you earlier, I mean, you're navigating through some murky waters again. And so uh, I'm really excited to hear about you and your uh, what you have to say in this book. Before we do that, we're going to throw you into what we call our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. What I've done is I've taken your book and kind of some themes. And I, I've created what I call a wisdom round, because I think you've got some things to pass on to our guys. And so I'm going to ask you four questions that have to do with wisdom, and I want you just to pass on your wisdom to our guys, our men in the arena. So first question is this. What is one piece of advice that you'd like to give your 25-year-old self? Oh, man. Uh, life's not about the quality of your performance. It's about enjoying a person. The, per, the person, like your person or any... Jesus. No, that's like, about, it's about enjoying Jesus. You okay. know, we start out in the Christian life thinking uh, that we, we can eventually, if we keep at it, we can get this performance down and, and do really well. We don't know when we're 25 that our performance is always going to be subpar. And so much of our uh, uh, self-worth is determined by how well we're performing. And, and the key to life is, is not performance it's feeling the affection of god it's enjoying a person the key to life is not performance wow that's a, that's going to fly in the face of some americans <laughs> i uh, i actually had god had to do some deep work in me in the last probably 2 years and that that was the exact uh point of reference so i really appreciate that next question what's the best piece of advice you've ever received man that's hard i've had some great uh, mentors um Probably the uh, life-changing thing for me was uh, learning how to pray John 17, 26 as a prayer. Father, grant me a work of the Holy Spirit to love the Son of God like you love him. And that oh, came wow. at a time in my life when uh, I was down on feelings, and I pretty much said, you know, loving God is obeying God, and I, I drained out the, uh, the emotional content. But I watched this preacher five years younger than me stand on a stage and, and uh, not— uh, give notes about something he'd studied, but he just spoke out of this power that lived in his heart. And, and I hadn't seen that kind of passion for God since my young life leader, uh, 20-something years before. And he, and he gave me that prayer, and I prayed it every day since. This was in uh, 1987, and it has is, uh, is revolutionized uh, my life uh, in terms of feeling uh, or, or enjoying the Lord, having love for him, as opposed to uh, just having love for a way of life. Now, your young life leader was day was Scott. Yeah, and then your the you, I read about this preacher in the book, but who was the preacher in the book? I can't remember his name. It, his name is Mike Bickle. Oh, Mike Bickle, Kansas City. I used to listen to his cassettes back in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. We be, uh, we became great friends, travel all around the world together, and he's one of the people I admired most uh, uh, of all the people I know. That's right, Mike Bickle. So, hey, what what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, <laughs> that God's not uh, doing miracles anymore. He just did them to uh, to show that the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. And and so that piece of advice kept me from praying for people for about 20 years. Oh, man. Hmm. Or believing that's... that God could do anything really dramatic, special. Yeah, that's. I, I figured you were going to say something like that based on the book, that The Power of the Holy Spirit. So number four, the last question is, if you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? Uh, 
Well, one thing I, I would love to have, have started pursuing, enjoying God much, much earlier, but I think a more practical point for the guys, this is one of the biggest mistakes I made as a father. My second born son, Scott, was the life of every party he was in, uh, got on drugs early. And he, when he tried to tell me about his pain, I, I wouldn't listen to him. I, I just said, well, of course you're in pain. You're doing drugs. And where I miss, if I had it to do over with my son, I would make, I would listen to his pain, number one. And number two, I would make absolutely sure uh, he knew I was proud of him. Mm. Uh, it, and that was one, one of the things that really hurt him. His older brother was a rock star. And so it was obvious I was proud of him. But uh, I kept waiting for Scott to change so I could be proud of him. But there were things in his life I could have I could have legitimately praised, but I was so focused on changing him, get him off drugs, um, that I that I failed him in that in that area as a father. I tell all my young guys today, I go, make sure your kids know you're proud of them. Well, you know, in, John, in uh, Matthew 17, the father he only spoke three times audibly in the New Testament, and two of those times he said, "This is my son, who I love." In him I am well pleased. And so that in him I am well pleased, to me that's saying, I am proud of you. Finding those areas as a parent. And I and you know it's hard because you don't want to lie to your kids either, but but you want right, to find those areas. Yeah, find yeah. those areas where you're proud of them. Yeah, that's really good, man. I if our guys can pick that up, that is a great nugget. I really appreciate that, Jack. That's a great nugget of truth. So hey, in a couple minutes, usually I ask our guests to tell their story, but your book is your story. And so, yeah. so why don't you give us a little bit of history and, and kind of kind of open up the pages of your book and let us look into your life, and then we're going to ask you some questions about it, and uh, we'll get rolling here. Okay. Well, I was uh, uh, raised in a, in a traumatic home. Uh, Mom and dad were at war, and uh, her anger caused him to be more absentee. My dad was my hero. He was a, a World War II hero. He was chief petty officer, fought hand-to-hand combat was wounded in the war. I asked him once, uh, did you kill anybody in the, in the war? And this vacant look came over his face and he said, yes. And then I tried to get more details out of him, but he wouldn't give me any. And I was too young to understand that the war had probably done significant mental damage, uh, yeah. uh to him. And, and so I, I never understood the war, but we, between my parents, but we were victims of it. Uh, he became more absentee and mom beat us, took, took her anger out on us. So uh, my parents, uh, not only uh, had no Christian friends, they had no friends. Sick homes don't have friends. They have secrets. And that's the kind of home that I grew up in. Well, your story went to church. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your book was interesting. You you know, your, your subtitle is a story of beauty in a broken life. And so I thought that was interesting because you talk about your dad's suicide at 12 years old. You yep. talk about your struggle with living in a single-parent home. You talk about uh, being uh, a tenured professor at one of the most prestigious universities or seminaries in the world and getting fired for your theology. You, you know, you're you leading, leading a church split, a subsequent rise to Christian stardom in the Vineyard Christian Fellowship movement, the tragic death of your son, your wife's subsequent fall into alcoholism. Your story... You know, really reads like a Shakespearean tragedy in a lot of it. You know, this rise to the top and this this kind of I don't want to say fall that implies something that's not there, but this just tragic. Uh, what why, what was the why behind this book? Why did you write such a different book than what you normally write? Um, I want to. I, I searched for years to write a book about friendship with God. I mean, that's the goal. I, uh, John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants, but friends. And most Christians go their, their, their whole life and never really understand that God uh, wants to be friends with them. Uh, most Christians go their, their whole life and they never really feel the affection of God. So when I was a young life leader, in, uh, I, I can't tell you how many high school kids would say a sentence like this. The young boys would say, well, I know my father loves me. And they would look down at the ground. Their voice would drop down. And I'm thinking... If your father loves you, why are you so sad when you say that sentence? So they got this theoretical belief that he loves them, but yeah. no real experience of it. And I think a lot of us in the church are that way. Oh, no, God loves me. Uh, we, we don't feel his affection. We, we're concentrating on all the stuff that's wrong with us and kind of waiting for that to clear up. And it's never really going to clear up. 
And friendship with God means that the essence of friendship is I enjoy my best friend. It is not a friend. My best friend, best friend, we're, it's not about service. It's about the pleasure we have when we're together. And I have a chemistry with my best friend that I don't have with anybody else. Hmm. And, and so the Lord Jesus is saying, I want you to feel my pleasure in you. And I want you to enjoy me. Um, when I concentrate on obedience, I'm least obedient. But when I concentrate on enjoying God, I'm, mo- I'm most obedient. So that that's the what I wanted to write. I wanted to be, write a book about friendship with God. It was beautiful that, would, that people would keep reading it. And I just searched for a long time for a vehicle, uh, a way to do this. And, and uh, normally I, I would take a passage, explain it, and then make some applications and, and so on. And, it, and that, every time I tried to do that, it didn't fit. And then it hit me. Just tell the story of your friendship with God and tell the truth. Most of the time when we preachers stand on a stage, we present a better version of ourselves than we really are. And, uh, and sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not, we're not so conscious about doing it. But when we do that, when we present this version of a holy person that doesn't exist, we, we teach everybody else to go underground with their sin. Yep. People are hearing yep. us go, hey, he's got the authentic Christian life. I don't. So they just go underground with their sin, and that's where it flourishes. So I learned a while back to stand on a stage and tell the truth about my life. I don't have to tell every bad thing, uh, but I fight that urge to make myself look better. And then, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm 70 years old now. I don't work for anybody. Yeah. I can't be fired. Uh, <laughs> and if you think, hey, I, I can't believe Jack did that. Well, fine. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm not, there's no penalty for me telling the truth now. And so I just decided to write the real the real story of our sins and in and, and some places when we couldn't talk about them because we would have been killed if we did. Um, and so it's an unsanitized version of becoming a friend of God. And, and that's the only version of life, really. They're all unsanitized. Yeah, I really, I laugh because I do a lot of speaking as well. And I'll often say, well, when I, when I do my devotions every day and I'll stop and I'll say, now when a pastor says every day, that means four days a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I, when so I say, <laughs> I pray all the time, that means, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you got to yeah. decode the pastoral lingo, which is sad because yeah. it, it really does uh, put people in bondage. You know, a good friend of mine is a guy named Brian Doyle. He founded an organization, Iron Sharpens Iron, and he's really cautious when he talks to men to not give them an overwhelming picture of what it means to be a spiritual leader, but just to, to do something realistic. So I really appreciate that. So I got a question for you, uh, Jack, because um, you, you talked about, in, I, I became a Christian through campus life. And the guy who led me to the Lord told me something I'd never heard before, that I could have a relationship with God. So that has been my go-to since my, in the last three decades. But you're talking about a man enjoying God. So I'm going to ask, I just, in my mind, I'm going, how does that happen? How does that flesh out? Like when you say, I want to joy, enjoy God, what does that look like in your personal journey? Uh, well, it means uh, kind of delighting in him. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, so I pray, uh, prayers become really important to me. And um, well, I don't know, a year, two years ago, I was praying, and I have passages I pray every day. I pray for my family, and then people I pray for, and, and I use a list. It's not the only way I pray, but anyway, I'm going through this list, and it's just duller than dust. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm, it's, it's literally like I'm taking a shopping list to God and just trying to get through it so I can go on with my real life, but I'm conscious so that's what I'm doing, and so I just stop praying, and I look up to heaven, and I say, God, are you enjoying this? Because I'm not. And, uh, and I don't hear anything. And uh, one of the things I always pray for is my son is a, a incredibly gifted journalist, um, won a lot of reward awards. And so I always pray for, for his writing and, you know, as well as his, his spiritual life. So, so, uh, I just go back to this dry time. Not, don't hear anything from God. Three days later, my son calls in the morning and he says, uh, Oh dad, uh, I just won best feature writer in the state of Missouri again. Wow. And when he said that, I hear this question from heaven. Are you enjoying this? Ah. Uh. Exactly and I just broke down. I started laughing. It's like, how I mean, he is so 
creative in the way he answers the question. He could have given me a, a, a kind of a little theological teaching. Yeah, Jack, when you pray and it's dry, it means more to me because you're per- persevering without the feeling. <laughs> but he took one of the, the one of the joys of my heart, which is my son, and answered in that way and, and made me laugh. So I find him breaking into my life like that uh, and, and sometimes in the worst painful time. Uh, but I also find just this guidance, just speaking to me through the day where I'm really, I can just talk with him. Uh, I don't have a running conversation, but I, I have contact with him that's meaningful. And I would assume that you have become good at the art of listening. Yeah, I've been praying uh, ever since I started believing the gifts of spirit. I've been praying for God to speak to me and for me to be able to hear his voice well. So I'm not content to stand on a stage and and just give a message. I want him to show me things about the people sitting out there in front of me so I can pray for them and and see healing and uh, see hope by the Holy Spirit come into people's lives. Yeah, I I think for me that that key to my relationship with God has been listening to him. Because, I mean, I can talk to him, but that's kind of, you know, don't be disrespectful, like Dallas Theological Seminary stuff, you know, but I want to have him talk to me. You know, and I think he wants to yeah. do that. He wants to invade my life with his presence, and so and I really appreciate that. So, in the you know, your subtitle in the midst, your subtitle is a story of beauty in the midst of a broken life. I think you've answered this already, but I'm going to ask the question already again. What what is the beauty to you? Uh, the beauty is where God can where, where God comes in into uh, c- comes into your life in, in, in so many creative ways and just dazzles you with his compassion, with his love, with his power, uh, with his wisdom. Um, it's, it's kind of like, a, it's like a inbreaking. Beauty uh, is what dazzles us. Uh, that, that's, I think, a great definition. And he has all kinds of creative ways of doing that. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, when I was, read your book, I'm not a details guy, so I didn't read the subtitle. I just read the title and oh. got into the book. And I got so enthralled with it because Jack Deere, in my experience, is he was the guy that traveled with Wimber, and he, you know, it was Jack John Wimber talking about this, and John Jack John Wimber talking about this, and Jack Deere explaining the theology behind the Holy Spirit, and it was just really a, this thing. So you know, you were kind of iconic back in the day. So I'm reading this, going, "Oh my gosh, I never knew," and I never picked up on the beauty part of your book until the last couple pages. You know, I, I was reading yeah. the book as a story of tragedy, and then that last couple pages, I really began to explain, understand the beauty. But in the book, on page 138, you talked about a word that I thought was really interesting, and I, and I thought it really had to do with, with the theme of your book, and that Hebrew word is rahamim. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and now I took a semester of Hebrew, nothing like what you had to endure, but isn't that a masculine plural form of Hebrew? Uh, well, it's, it, it is, it is, but, uh, but gender is in, in Hebrew is often, uh, arbitrary. Okay. Just like, like table in, in, uh, in German is masculine. Okay. But it's just arbitrary. And, and, uh, so yeah, anyway, it's, it's the womb of a woman. So, but that's the word, the Hebrew word for compassion, correct? Yeah. So how does this weave into your story? So, uh, well, I think the place where I put it in the story there, I'm not, not sure, but it, it's, it's a great, great word because the, the, a Hebrew man could look at his, his pregnant wife and tell that she had tender feelings for that child in her womb that he couldn't enter into. And, and so when they wanted to find a word that described God's tender feelings for his helpless children, that's the one they picked. They took the word for womb, turned it into a plural. It's called an abstract plural. Then it becomes his, his word for compassion. So um, when we had our first child, uh, Lisa came through the door and said, I'm pregnant. Um, you, you know, we're, I was 27 years old. Um, next day, she becomes a threatened miscarriage. And a doctor is a good friend of ours, a young life guy. And he says, uh, Jack, I'm going to give you guys the medicine. Lisa's got to stay in bed, but she's most most likely not going to carry this baby to term. Yeah. And and so we went home and sat on the couch, and both of us were crying. And uh, and so I said, I just thought, 
you know, I don't take one person's opinion in theology. Why should I in medicine? So I called a friend of mine, a brilliant doctor, and uh, he said, yep, she's been diagnosed uh, correctly. And he said, actually, Jack, you don't really want this baby to be born because most likely you would spend the rest of your life in finances trying to care for this baby. The baby would be born so defective. Now, back then, I took comfort in those words. I wouldn't today, Yeah. Uh, but back then, I took comfort. So, so I go back in the room. Lisa's still crying. Her eyes are almost swollen shut. And uh, I say, I, I tell Lisa what the doctor said, and she just keeps right on crying. So I say a little louder. I think she's getting too upset to hear me. And she just keeps right on crying. So I put my hand on her shoulders to turn her to me, and she uh, uh, wheels away from me. She said, I heard you the first time. And the worst thing in the world that could happen to me would be to lose this little one. I will take this baby, however God gives me this baby, and I will care for this baby the rest of my life. When she said that, I just backed away from her. I, I knew I was standing on holy ground. Yeah. And I said, how is this possible, God? And then that word, Rahamim, just exploded in my brain. I went, ha, this is how you feel about us. Yeah. I mean, that, that baby has done nothing but threaten her life, threaten her ability to have future children, and she says the worst thing in the world would be to lose one of these little ones. And that's the way God feels about us. He's us, us morally helpless, helpless uh, kids. Uh, the worst thing in the world, he says, would be to lose one of these little ones. And that's the first time I actually identified with his compassion. Well, it's interesting because you threw that word in there on page uh, 136 or something. And then you didn't go back to it again. But I, I went, man, that word seemed to be thematic for your life. And how God viewed you in the midst of all of the darkness that you had to navigate. Yeah, and and it was one of the things that that changed me uh, as far as healing goes because yeah. I always said God heals out of uh, the uh, because He wants to show the apostles or trustworthy teachers of doctrine. But when I started looking up every single healing story in the New Testament, often it says He healed out of compassion. So then you got to explain, okay, He's not healing anymore. Where does compassion go? Yes. Well, tell us about tell us tell our listeners about your your epiphany with a Psalm one thirty nine, oh. and that really plays into this Rahamim thing, in my opinion. Yeah, you know Psalm uh, one thirty nine is one of the most uh, famous psalms, and uh, there's just it, it, Bruce Walkie, my Hebrew professor, uh, had a study that, and when I say study, I mean uh, he asked detailed questions about the. Uh, about the Hebrew text. And you could spend hours just looking up something. And, and so here was the verse he asked us to study. It's where um, uh, he says, um, it's verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Um, if I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. So there's a preposition there. How precious to me are your thoughts. Uh, and the preposition is two. In English, uh, that can have 20 different meanings, and you can see them all in one paragraph in a dictionary. In Hebrew, it's a whole different picture. Um, the, the Hebrew lexicon has eight double-column, uh, eight double column fine print pages to discuss this one preposition. Wow. And so I, I spent hours looking up every use, and I figured out it doesn't mean two here at all. It means about and uh, for, for a number of reasons, but now read it this way. How precious uh, are your thoughts about me, O God? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Yeah. God's yeah. thoughts about us are infinite. It just puts a whole different uh, perspective on, on his affection for us and on his love. We're always on his mind. Yeah, and I've always read it that way, and I thought that was really good. I, I when I read that, I thought that was very significant for our listeners to hear because, because even when we're living in sin, even when uh, darkness seems to swallow our lives with tragedy, God continues to focus and think about us over and over and nonstop. And so, you know, we I guess our, our listeners haven't heard this. Tell us a little bit about your story. You you were at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, for 12 years, but you had an experience that really cost you your job and kind of launched you into another uh, aspect of uh, or realm of ministry. Can you go through that story? Yeah, so at Dallas, we didn't believe God was healing today, and we mocked faith healers. Uh, and, and I became a professor, and I mocked faith healers just like uh, I'd never been to a healing meeting, but I just I knew they were all wrong. I even told students, 
don't go to a healing meeting. That's a good place to pick up a demon. I actually, <laughs> like, like I'm some authority on demons. Yeah. I've never seen a demon either. Um, but that, that's kind of how bad off I, uh, I was. I'd never met a person who knew the Bible that actually believed God healed today. And then I met one of my heroes who was super smart, been a professor of psychiatry. We loved all of his books. His name was Dr. John White. And uh, we asked him to come to our church and do a conference. And he told me that he believed in healing. And I gave him an argument against healing and he shot it down. And uh, which, which that does, doesn't usually happen. Yeah. Um, but, but I was only giving those arguments to the choir, you know, to people that just believed like, yeah, uh, yes. like I did. And then I asked him if he'd ever seen a healing. And he told me two miraculous stories of recent healings in his life. And what that conversation did, it didn't convince, it didn't get me to believe healing was today. It was happening today. I mean, it, it, I didn't get me to believe the gift of healing was being given today, but it caused me to go back to scripture. And for the next four months, I looked up every single healing story in the new Testament, took notes on each one. And I asked one basic question, God, why did you heal? Hmm. And not one time did it ever say he healed to show that the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. He healed <laughs> because he was having mercy, having compassion on people, because he was proving that his son was the son of God. Uh, about 10 or 12 reasons, which are all rooted in the eternal character of God. He heals because this is what God does. Yeah. And so that got me to believe in healing. And I was still safe as long as, as, long as I hadn't had this friendship with uh, John Wimber. But uh, John White gets me to meet John Wimber I love John Wimber. He's like a young life leader to me. And uh, he is unbelievable. I, at the very first meeting I, I go to, he's speaking at a Baptist church in Fort Worth. And, uh, and, and we're and after the church service is over. It's not over. They're praying for people. And, uh, and all of a sudden he stops and he says, oh, there's a lady here. Uh, you have uh, back pain and you haven't come down. Would you come down so we can pray, pray, pray for you? Nobody comes down. And he said, uh, you went to the doctor on Tuesday. You've had this pain for years. He said you were just going to have to learn to live with it. Come down. I, th I think the Lord will really touch you. Nobody came down. Then he described where the back pain started. Uh, up here on this shoulder, it wraps around your back and comes down. down. I'm going, this is incredible. Uh, nobody came down to the front. And then he said, your name's Margaret. Margaret, would you please get up and come down to the front? So, we can... <laughs> so about halfway down the center aisle, Margaret gets up and starts shuffling down to the front. And I think, this is amazing. And then my next thought was, no, this is too good to be true. Stage. What if he paid, what if he paid her to do this? Yeah. And tomorrow, you know, she's Mabel and she in some other city in Texas. And she comes down to the front with an envelope having two tumors in it that she's coughed up. I go, ah, I don't believe this. <laughs> and the guy behind me from my church that, uh, that I'd known for 15 years screams, that's Margaret, my sister-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Margaret Pinkston goes down to the front. Uh, one person prays for her, and she's completely healed. Wow. And, uh, so that was the night I met Wimber, and we became ended up becoming really good friends. And it's, it was my friendship with Wimber that caused me to have to leave the seminary, not my, not my theology. Oh. It was an, he, he was like the most prominent healer um, in the country, and he wasn't somebody you could make fun of because he wasn't showy. He was a conservative evangelical. He didn't take money or take up collections or anything like that. He didn't have an entourage to protect him. He stayed for hours after the meeting, just laying hands on people and praying for people. And when he stood on a stage, he didn't brag about himself. He said, there are lots of people in my church that can uh, uh, you know, pray for the sick better than me. Uh, he was just so normal, uh, but he just had this incredible power in his life. And so what was happening was many conservative evangelicals were starting to believe in healing because of Wimber. And so the, my seminary and a lot of conservative evangelicals at the time perceived him as a huge threat. And it was because I wouldn't give up that friendship. I was given a choice. Give up your friendship with Wimber or resign from the seminary. And I wouldn't resign. And I wouldn't give up my friendship. So they ended up firing me in uh, the fall of 1987. And I was a tenured uh, associate professor taught in the doctoral program. In fact, you couldn't even get into the doctoral program if you didn't pass my oral theological exams and my German exams. Um, but none of that saved me. That friendship with Wimber was just considered uh, too big an infection. But that did propel you to the next phase of ministry. Oh, yeah, it was way better. I mean, uh, I, then I, Wimber just, we, we moved out to California, 
And Wimber took me all over the world and he introduced me to the church. I mean, I just knew one little section of the church, yeah, but Wimber introduced me to the Anglicans, to the church in Sweden, to uh, 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 Australia, you know, just all, all over, and, I, uh, and the Catholics. Um, I just, I met great people everywhere. He loved the whole church. You just couldn't get him to be critical uh, of the church or, or think that his his church was superior to other churches. Yeah, and it sounds like he, in the book, it sounded like he bought you a house and two cars to live in Anaheim. He did. He did. Yeah, wow. So we came to Anaheim. I thought uh, we couldn't sell our house. So when we came to Anaheim, I thought we're just going to live in apartments. That's fine because what I'm seeing now, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in the room. My blind eyes are open. I mean, this is incredible. I, I don't care if I live in an apartment. And so we got to Anaheim and Wimber said, nah, you got three kids. You got dogs. You're not living in an apartment. And so he bought a nice four bedroom home and then remodeled it. Now, the church owned it, but that's where we lived. He paid all the utilities, and then he bought uh, two cars for us that he gave to us that were, uh, uh, you know, he was just super generous. Well, hey, we're going to come right back and hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back with the rest of this uh, podcast interview. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with a mission to help men become their best version and change their world. The war to change your world is epic. Every battle counts, and every man in the arena matters. Our closed Facebook forum for men, appropriately called Men in the Arena, is a great way for you to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Hey, because of my passion to see men get out of the bleachers into the arena, I want to offer a free resource to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Simply give us your email. We'll send you a PDF copy of the field guide. This is my 365-day bathroom book for men. It's a study of manly words in the Bible illustrated with great stories. This is a great resource for all of our arena men. Guys, you're going to love this book. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those in the anonymous bleachers pleading for you to get in the arena today? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Okay, so so that went on for a while, and you became kind of his, I mean, and I'm talking firsthand knowledge here from what I remember, kind of his right-hand guy Yeah. in ministry. You were the theology guy explaining the spirit stuff. Yeah, after I came along... He would not, Kevin was still his writer, but he would not let anything go to print that I hadn't read and critiqued. Um, and then I introduced him to Mike Bickle and, and the pro- prophetic guys. That's how the prophetic guys yeah. came in the uh, vineyard. Um, okay. And so, yeah. and then you guys had a falling out of sorts and you ended up leaving. And yeah. what, what happened next? Um, so I never told anybody about that falling out. And, and until I wrote it in the book. Okay. As far, as far as everybody, as far as most people on the outside knew, we just left and went to Texas to uh, start something. Oh, so, okay. So after, but it's in the book. So I'm, I'm, I wanted to tell the truth yeah. uh, about it. Uh, and it was, it was my fault, not his fault. Yeah. Uh, so we went to Texas and we stayed there uh, for about two years, 92 uh, to 94. And then we went to Whitefish, Montana. And that was paradise for me. That's where we got into all kinds of hunting and, and I had, and because I've been on TV and my books have been uh, popular, I could hunt virtually anywhere across the state. Ranchers opened up their places to me. We just, wow. it was paradise. Wow. And then you, you wrote, you wrote something that I, I'm, I, you didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just going to, I'm curious on page 150, 155, you wrote about the peak of your pride. And so tell us about the peak of your pride and how it affected you and those around you. Well, which section of my life was that? I think it was at the. I think it was when you were traveling with Wimber, and you were having this huge platform, this global platform. It sounded like it was in that context. Yeah, I mean, you know, standing next to one of the most famous people in the world, standing on stages in front of thousands of people, uh, praying for people, and they get healed. Uh, um, and it could have been after that too, because. When I lived in uh, when I lived in Whitefish, I was flying 160, 70,000 miles a year just oh, on wow. one airline, speaking and uh, all over the world in, in uh, conferences. So there's just a lot of deference shown uh, to me, and uh, so and and you know, feeling like 
you know, you're one of the smart guys in the room. Um, I mean, and you, you have some healing power in your life and my books are selling well and yeah, all that kind of thing. Was there a, uh, was there a dualism between your ministry and your personal life? How, like, how do you mean? Well, you had talked about uh, getting in a huge fight with your wife and then going onto a platform with 1500 men and that, that there was a, that your life was not where you wanted it to be, yet your ministry was still growing and expanding. Did you, was that, is that accurate? Well, that, that story was about her, uh, uh, getting drunk yeah. and swallowing a bunch of sleeping pills. And, uh, so she went through about an eight year period, went to four rehabs. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, at the time, I, I felt more like a hero, okay. Because I'm I'm committed to getting her, her her sober. I'm staying with her. I'm the one that's rescuing her, taking her to the emergency rooms, that uh, that sort of thing. What I couldn't see at the time is that I'm a significant cause of her drinking. Um, by by uh, trying to control her drinking, I'm violating one of the rules of AA that you're powerless over alcohol your your own or somebody else's and that's what i wouldn't acknowledge that was that was probably that that was could be the peak of my pride okay well now now i think this i think that the peak of the pride statement came before the death of your son because your wife oh, really yeah because your wife's alcoholism uh started Didn't start a- af- after after and then yeah you because you said um on page 229 you wrote although i believed in a god who heals I couldn't believe that my soul would ever be healed from the death of our son. Yeah, and then your and then yeah. your wife. It sounds like from that death, she turned to alcohol and drugs, and so you were trying to navigate around grieving over the loss of your child. And your wife was had turned to this other thing, so you had to step into another role while you were grieving. I'm just trying to get yeah. the chronology here. Yeah, yeah, to- and and totally afraid I was going to lose her. Yeah, because um, she she had to go to the I had I taken her to the emergency room a number of times to be revived. Oh uh, man! Oh my gosh! So what what are so so what are what did you learn through all this? I mean, you had a you're, I won't walk go. You're, if they go on to read about your son's tragic death, they can read about that in the book. But you have a son who dies tragically. Your wife uh, turns to alcohol to to mourn, and it gets really really unhealthy. What what are what's going on between you and God through this whole process? It, uh, God never gives up on you. And um, the worst pain in our life was uh, on December twenty seventh, two thousand, when we lost our son in our in our home, drugged out suicide. Um, and I didn't understand then that the worst day of your life is only the beginning of bad. Mm. You just you go down a, a spiral. You just it just keeps getting uh, worse. And God did not take away our pain, but he came down into it in, uh, in the most Ooh. amazing way. So I'll, and I'll, I'll give you one, one example. So after we lose our son, we, 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 can't do, we, we can't take care of ourselves. So we, we get his body on a plane, and three days later, uh, we come back to Fort Worth, and we collapse at the home of our, our best friends, John and Nancy uh, Snyder. And they do everything for us. They wash our clothes. They... they uh, uh, they cook our meals. They they do everything, and and there's no time limit on it. When we met, they had this huge, huge home in a wealthy section of Fort Worth. Nancy met us at the door and said, "You take that side, we'll take this side, and we'll grow old together." That was, uh, I mean, they were unbelievable. But all of our friends were just unbelievable. So two weeks after the funeral, oh, well, another part of the story is uh, before I lost my son. Here, here's one of the ways I I, uh, I, I tell people, I am pretty good at leaving God and making it look like I'm still walking with him. Oh. So in, in uh, the mid nineties, I got interested in stocks when the, when the tech stocks were going crazy. Uh-huh. And, and so I started investing in, in uh, stocks and I started making on some days more money in a single day than my annual salary before. And, and I was reading, uh, I, I was reading economic literature, stock market literature more than I was reading the Bible. But I was still writing a, uh, a book about how to hear God's voice. I was still traveling around the world speaking for God. So outwardly, it, it looks kind of good. But inwardly, I'm really into money. And I'm, I'm, and I'm just fascinated with the market. And I'm making friends in the Silicon Valley. And, uh, and by, the, by uh, 
the spring of 2000, I almost have enough money to pull out of the market and never work for the rest of my life. And I I think I'm just going to do, I'm going to wait till the summer and then I'll, I'll, I'll hit my financial goal. I'll take the money out of the market, put it in a safe interest bearing account. And then I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. Um, and so that, that's where my heart was. It was really into the, uh, uh, money. And then the tech stocks in April started their collapse. And, uh, by the fall, I was, I'd lost 50% of my net worth. I still had a ton of money though, but by the fall, I no longer cared about money. I was worried about my son because it looked like he might be in the latter stages of, uh, of the drug addiction. And then we lost him December 27th, 2000, got back in, in Fort Worth. And I'm continuing to lose uh, money, but I have not been really with God for five years. I've been pursuing money. Um, So two weeks after his burial, the uh, funeral bill arrives. It's $10,064.65. And they want their money right away. No problem. I've I've still got enough stock market money. I've I've got the money in in the bank account. 30 minutes after the bill arrives, my secretary comes in with a big sack of mail and 38 sympathy cards drop out of that sack. And out of that, uh, out of those cards drop 22 checks, one check for each year of Scott's life. He was, he died when he was 22. The funeral bill was $10,064.65. I totaled the checks. They were $10,065. Wow. I, I did not say thank you. I was stunned. My chest was, was heaving. And I just said, God, what are you saying to me? What are, why did you do this? I have the money. What is, what are you saying? And then I heard these three sentences. I paid for his life. I paid for his death and I'll pay for everything you need the rest of your life. And I just sobbed. Uh, It's like God said, okay, if money's what you're interested in, I'll speak to you with money. Mm. I'll use money to get your heart back. Uh, it's like he just came down, sat beside me. And when that happened, I knew he's, it, like he is really in this with us. Um, and then uh, this happened uh, two months after we lost Scott. A church in Amarillo that I go, that I go to every month and speak. The pastor works on his marriage ministry, and, and so he doesn't have to do anything that weekend. I go do all the services, 5,000 people. I go to the elder meeting that week, uh, and then I fly back to Montana. Every month for years, I've been uh, doing it, speaking at all their retreats, uh, uh, all their conferences. So they call two months after we've lost Scott. I have not been to church in two two months. Uh, when I go to church, it's to say something, and I don't have anything to say now. Yeah, I'm, I'm questioning the, the power of prayer and prayed for my son more than anybody. It didn't get answered. So I'm kind of in a questioning mode and I don't want to go to church and I don't, cause I don't have anything to say. So the church in Amarillo calls and they said, Jack, all of our senior pastors are gone. We got this famous guest speaker coming and there's no one to introduce them. Could you come just for 24 hours and introduce him at the four services, the weekend services, and then, and then go back. You, you just, you'll just be away from Lisa for 24 uh, hours. And Lisa said, honey, go that church has been so great to us. And I've got Steven and Elise here. So I go, uh, it's the first service Saturday afternoon, five o'clock service. It's over. The prayer team is standing down at the front, 50, 60 people up at the front that pray for people. I'm standing down at the front, but I'm not praying for anybody. And I see on my right, this pretty blonde lady, and she's leading, uh, a person by the hand. It, and I can't tell if the person's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, oh, yeah. because the person doesn't have a face. I remember this. And, and yeah. so she leads them right up to me. And, and there, where there should have been eyes, they're just these slits that are sewn shut, this gaggle of flesh. I mean, I, it's a deformed thing that, that passed for a nose and then a misshapen hole for a mouth. And then out of his uh, throat is a permanent trach tube sticking. Mm. And she says, hi, my name's Michelle. This is my son, Aaron. He's 16 years old. Six months ago, he was so distraught, he put a shotgun under his chin and blew his face away. It's taken multiple surgeries to get him back to the, to this state. Um, he doesn't believe in God. He came down here because I asked him to, would you pray for him? Hmm. That was my oh, first man. time in church since the loss of my loss of my son. Wow. And, uh, so I said, uh, Aaron, my name is Jack. Uh, 
would you like me to pray for you? And he put the, his finger over the tube and said, uh, yes. So the air would go up through the, yeah. his vocal cords. Um, so I put one hand, I put my, my right hand on his back. The second my left hand touched his heart, I felt power come down me, on me. It rippled down my back of my neck, all the way down my back and, and down my legs. And I was on automatic pilot. I didn't have to think what I was going to say. I said, Aaron, my son pulled the trigger at Christmas, but he didn't make it. You've been spared because God has purposes for your life if you want to fulfill them. Then Michelle started sobbing and she said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were the pastor whose son. I just, I just, I never would have come up here. And I said, Michelle, look, don't cry. This is a divine appointment. You did exactly what you're supposed to. I'm glad to pray for Aaron and glad to pray for you. And then I went back and finished the prayer over Aaron. And, and when I laid hands on uh, Michelle, the exact same thing happened again. I knew exactly what to pray for her. I watched them walk away and I looked up to heaven and I said, God, you are really something. I mean, the last time I laid these hands on anyone to, to pray for them was when I held my son's shattered head in my hands. Oh. That was the last time. And, uh, and now I just had them on a boy who blew his face away. Uh, I said, you are amazing, God. Nobody writes stories like you do. When, when I lost my son, I lost my story, my reason for getting out of bed, my re my, the way I interpreted life. And, and, and it's like God gave me back my story. I knew what he was saying. Stay with me, Jack, and I'll heal the places I've broken you, and I'll give you power to help the hopeless. Wow. So he, he didn't take away the pain, but he came down in and redeemed it. He made it mean something. Uh, and eventually he did take it away, but it, it was years before I could say, hey, all, all the sting of Scott is gone and nothing but the sweetness remains. Well, you said earlier before you shared the story, you said, God did not take away our pain, but he came down into it. Now, you're a theology professor, so I, I want to be careful here. Would it be safe to say this? God does not take away our pain, but he comes down into it? Or is, or is it more situational? Well, I think, no, I think pain is something you have to endure. You get, yeah. it's, it, that's, it, here, here's, what, here's what I believe about pain, that no pain comes to us except the pain God permits. Uh, it's, it's all, all of our pain is filtered through God. He's a great, great father, and he would never allow us to have pain that he doesn't want to redeem. Um, so I, I say it like this. I say, I've had pain I did not deserve. I've never had pain I did not need. Wow. All of our pain is filtered through God. Well, that's through, it, through, it, through his mercy, through his compassion. And the reason we have, uh, and the reason we have some of that pain is he wants to take us, uh, uh, it's, it's the only way we can go deeper in the divine abyss of love. Um, and that's what life is about. It, it's about going deep in the love of God. Wow, that's, well, speaking of going deep in the love of God, I shared this earlier in the podcast, I'll share it again. On page 267, uh, you made a statement that was shocking to me, because <laughs> it didn't follow, in my opinion, the, the paradigm or the motif of the book. Uh, I would have never thought it would have been the book, but you wrote this. You wrote, my story is about love. The boy in the picture with Davy Crockett outfit and the jungle gym rifle, you guys got to read the book, there's a cool picture of, of Jack as a young boy, was happy because he loved and was loved. Then he learned, this is powerful, very, very powerful, and this goes along with the God filtering uh, the pain. Then he learned that love would crush him, that when you love someone, you put yourself at his or her mercy. You gave them power to hurt you. When the boy became a man, love crushed him again and again. The man saw that broken people were the hardest to love because their wounds caused them to lash out in fear. Wow. Can you walk us through that, Jack? My heart started shutting down before my dad ever killed himself. Um, and it was just to protect my, uh, my heart. And uh, keeping people at a distance um, is a way of protecting yourself. Yeah. But it's also a way of missing out on, on joy. And, and, and that's, that protection comes at great, great expense. Um, and there, there just came a point in which I decided, uh, he, Hebrews 12, all the, pain, all, all the disciplines from God, just make friends with your pain. Make friends with it. It's there for a good purpose. Uh, don't try to explain it away. And uh, it, it was a slow transition, but, I, but it was also more and more a conscious choice of uh, I'm going to let people inside. Um, 
And I've always had one or two best friends that I could pretty much trust with everything. But this was like a different uh, acceptance of people, sort of, uh, you know, learning to find pleasure in people and, and risking the, the pains that come with that. Yeah, because I, our relationships are always risky because our relationships involve people. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and people bring their baggage, they bring their mess into the relationship. So you said... Yeah, and what, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 go, go ahead. ahead. I was asking... The, I was going to say, some, sometimes you make a decision not to love, <clears throat> but it's not a conscious... You don't, you don't know that that's the decision you're making, that you're, you're trying to protect yourself. It's only uh, it, it, when healing starts that you can kind of look backwards and say, oh, that's what I was doing. I was shutting people out so I wouldn't get hurt. Yeah, and, and you know, you talked about you know this theme. This book is about your love, your love relationship with God, and enjoying God. And and you know, God wants us to love Him with all His heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I have found that when I have pain, especially when it's attached to a person who's hurt me, and I have not broke free of that and had freedom, that hinders my ability to love God with everything I have. Yeah, true. And so He wants me to. So make you said make friends with your pain. And you wrote yeah. this. You wrote this in your book, and I want you to just walk us through this. Almost nothing in my life has worked out the way I thought it should. <laughs> I thought, as I grew older, I would grow more deserving of God's love, not less. You walk us through that. Yeah, sure. sure. So the the theology I embraced <clears throat> said, you know, one day, if you just keep after this, you keep walking with God. One day, you, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, and you will get. You will get to that stage in life where it's just not that hard to obey God. You'll kind of, you know, sort of have it made. It's not like you'll never have another problem. Um, and, and uh, you know, he's, he'll, he'll love you. Uh, you, you, you. He'll love you more uh, because of your, your performance. That's kind of a, a theology I was yeah. laboring under. Um, so uh, I, I gradually came to see that my performance is always going to be subpar. Yep, and uh, that he loves me in spite of my performance, and that I can actually feel his affection, <coughs> even in in uh, really low points um, of life. And and so I, I just my focus switched. I started concentrating on enjoying God. I, pr- I prayed to uh, be able to enjoy Him every day, to love Him uh, like uh, to love the Son of God like the Father loves Him, and I prayed to see the beauty of the Lord, um, to be rooted. You know, Ephesians three. My, the go-to prayer for me these days is Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love mm-hmm. may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Mm. That's maybe the greatest prayer for feeling the affection of God. And that's when we're rooted and established in, uh, in love. And we can't be, it, it, we can't be moved. We can't be, uh, you know, tragedy or disappointment doesn't take us away because we're rooted in love. Um, and that's when we can, that's when we can return love to him. He first loved us. That's why we love him. So mm-hmm. if, if I'm not experiencing his love, it's going to be really hard for me to love him back. So I I'm, make my go-to prayer. Let me feel your love today. Let me feel your affection. Break through the routine today and let me have an experience of your love. And that's really what the book is about. Yeah. It's about experience. Yeah, and I, and I, I don't say that at the beginning, though. I just kind of I I take you through progression like at the first i say you know I, it, it, this was a relationship with god not a religion yeah you know like kind of general it's just gradually that theme of friendship emerges because that's the way it happens in life you know gradually uh, we discover he, he he wants to be friends with us and then we discover it's actually possible on a regular basis to feel his affection um but it's not even talk it's hardly ever talked about in church right yeah we, we go to we go to church and obligations are hurled at us um and, and church often is is uh, is about obligations instead of about enjoying a person. It, and so for me, that was just a really gradual experience of coming into his love. You know, it's really funny, Jack. You're going to appreciate this. This isn't a question, but you prompted a thought. My son Darby and I were on a deer hunt uh, two years ago now. We backpacked six miles into the wilderness. And when we got there, we were in the middle of a snowstorm. 
and uh, we were soaking wet. Well, not soaking wet. We had the right gear, but we're laying in the tent on a bed of snow, cold as cold can be. And Darby says, uh, tell me your hunting stories, Dad. So I told him three or four of my favorite ones, and he said, all of those sounded horrible. And I said, well, how, how does this one sound with me and you? He goes, horrible. He goes, I'm not even thinking about hunting. I'm thinking about dying. And I said, <laughs> and, I said and that is what hunt makes hunting so wonderful. We partner with guys, and we do something hard and challenging. And that's what, we, that's what draws us together is the pain that we experience together. There's a bonding element to our pain. And a yeah. deepening to that relationship, uh, that authenticity, because we've experienced pain together. So I That's thought. True. So so if you could tell our guys listening today anything, if you could give them one thing to do, Jack, what would it be? Based on your book. Yeah. So I think uh, uh, the most important thing we do is pray, and uh, so I want to have I want to have regular time where I pray, and the thing I want to pray for most is that I'll feel the affection of God. And then out of that experience that I'll love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbors, myself. Those are the, those are the daily prayers. Um, and I pray that every day. And I've, I've watched, I've, I have become a person who feels more of this affection, and I've become a more loving person. When I focus, love is the big thing I focus on these days. I mean, I want to see blind eyes open and all that. I still, I pray for all kinds of healing and all that. But I think the most important thing really is loving God. And, and feeling his love. And so I try to organize my life around that. I mean, that's kind of how does this, whatever I'm doing, you know, it's kind of like, how does this fit in with loving God? Where, you know, how does it contribute to it or, or subtract from it? Well, and, and in your book, it was interesting because I did see a progression of, there was a real start of real drive and ambition. And I saw a real progression of love in your book. You really, uh, in the latter years of Scott's life, you really were loving him well, I thought, from the book. And then his tragic loss, and then your wife went into a downward spiral, and you really loved her well. And it's and uh, and on two, I'm going to close with this, Jack, and tell me if I'm wrong here. To me, on page 274, when I read it, I heard this one time that God takes our mess and turns it into our message. And I, yep. when I read this quote on 274, I thought maybe this is the message that has come out of your mess. And tell me if I'm right or wrong here. Uh, it's You said this, I was too preoccupied with building my, my kingdom. Yep. I didn't enjoy them, meaning my family, I'm assuming, as much as I could have. I have more time than I ever have, but I'm not retired. I'm focused on enjoying the ones I love and the capital O, one I love, and that counts for more than what I'm building. Would you say that's yeah. the message now today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, and how are you doing? How are you and Lisa in your marriage these days? Great, uh, good. Yeah. So Lisa's just lost a ton, uh, and yet she's she is happy. I mean, it's just amazing to watch her. She laughs every single day. Um, she's more restricted in what she can do, what she can enjoy than she's ever been, um, and yet she's probably more content and and peaceful and happy than she's ever been. She enjoys our grandchildren. Uh, our, we have a, a seven-year-old granddaughter, a five-year-old granddaughter. Um, so yeah, and us, we're at peace. Um, I don't, I don't need a better story. This one's good. Like it is right now. We, we find God every day in this, in this story. Um, it's not perfect, but it, but it's good. I, I think that's powerful. Our story's not perfect, but it's good. You summed it up for all of us. <laughs> hey, I really appreciate you coming on our show, Jack. And, uh, I don't think I've ever read a book so uh, stripped down naked and raw as yours. And uh, I appreciate you putting it out there on the table for everybody just to let us experience the reality of what life looks like. And when those guys get on stage and preach and God uses them mightily, you know, there's something going on behind the scenes because we all have real lives. We're all human. And so just to understand yeah. the human side of, of what we're doing. And so thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. It's been great being with you. Yeah, you too, man. And man, Maybe we'll have to meet someday and chase some elk around the mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, so guys, let's get our boots on the ground. What's next? What's the action step that we want you to take because of what you heard today? And this one's going to be real simple, guys. This is going to be real simple but profound. Here's what we want you to do. We just want you to really focus in on your time with God. Focus on in on spending time with Him in prayer and then really listening 
to what he has to say with you. Build that relationship. We believe that this is about a relationship with God, so let's really focus on our relationship with God through prayer in the coming days, guys. We'll also post our Boots on the Ground action item in our weekly equipping blast that you can subscribe to at the men in the arena at meninthearena.org when you grab our free uh, PDF version of our bathroom book for men. Make sure you head on over to Facebook and join the thousands of men on our forum for men as well. And guys, did you know that the Men in the Arena is a nonprofit? crowdfunded organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version. Because of a large group of generous donors like you, we're absolutely freely offer our podcast weekly equipping blasts, discussion forums, plus our small group resources. We send those out free to any missionary or men in underdeveloped nations. And guys, you can find out more about how to support this ministry at meninthearena.org. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Enjoy the Lord your God. Grind it out and be a man. This is Dale Culver, and you've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world on our closed Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of manhood. In our passion to help all arena men, we're offering an excellent free resource when you visit our homepage at meninthearena.org. Simply give us your email, and we'll send you a free PDF version of Jim's book for men called The Field Guide, a bathroom book for men. It's a daily study of manly words in the Bible explained with great stories. Thank you for listening to this episode, the Men in the Arena podcast. This is Dale Culver signing off. Until next time, thank you for joining men in the arena from around the world who are becoming their best version. And remember, when a man gets it, Everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.